And all the people said, Amen. Amen. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to proclaim the, the good news of the good news of the gospel. Those of us who have been convinced that salvation is by grace alone have much to rejoice in because preaching is easy when you're bragging on Jesus. I'd like us to open our Bibles to the 118th Psalm of David this morning, Psalm chapter 118. This is the center chapter of the entire Bible. Were you to open your Bible up and go 594 chapters forward and 594 chapters backward, it would leave you with Psalm chapter 118. It's unclear exactly who is the author of this prophetic psalm. Some commentators attribute it to David, others attribute it to Moses. But whoever is the author of this great psalm has a key prophecy that we want to deal with for a little while this Lord's Day. We want to title our study, The Stone that the builders rejected in Psalm chapter 118. We back up to verse 21. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the head uh, stone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I want us to consider not only from an Old Testament perspective, but also the New Testament revelation of who this stone is, because this stone relates to Jesus Christ. In this prophecy, the stone which the builders refused, the same has become the head headstone of the corner. According to Jewish tradition, the stones for Solomon's temple, quarried and shaped far from the temple site, included one odd stone, odd-shaped stone, that would not fit anywhere until they got to the very top of the wall, where the wall would join in the corner that overlooked the Kidron Valley. This would be the highest point of the temple wall itself. And that was the stone that was designated for the trumpeter, the one that would blow the shofar. He would stand on that stone and blow or announce the beginning of the annual feasts that were observed by the children of Israel. This is significant in our understanding of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that this prophecy is a prophecy both of life and death, that of refusal and that of reigning, that of uh, rejection and that of reception, that of reproach and that of resurrection. This prophecy is very significant to the redemptive work that was accomplished by Jesus Christ Himself. 
The Greek adjective for uh, the cornerstone is acrogonia. Acro meaning highest and gonia meaning stone. The highest capstone used to connect two intersecting walls. It's interesting when I think about Jesus Christ, I think about the joining together of His deity with His humanity. I think about the uniting of the Jewish people to the elect among the Gentile people. I think about the walls of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled by the New Testament revelation of Christ. I think about the convergence of the eternal purpose of God with the timely performance of that purpose. I think about the wall of heaven condescending to the wall of earth. These are united in the person of Jesus Christ. This prophecy that was a thousand years before Christ came used the imagery of the metaphorical language that would describe the incarnate uh, God of heaven, how God would come in human form. Isn't it wonderful to think about what John wrote in John chapter 1 verse 14 when he said, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Fullness, uh, the capping of the eternal purposes of God fulfilled in one individual, the very God and the very man, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful to think about this morning? Now let us go to another Old Testament scripture in Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. Listen to what Isaiah said 700 years before the coming of the Son of God. He said, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. Notice this reference. A stone, stable, stability, strength. A stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Just as Brother Andy reminded us again this morning that uh, our faith is not in faith. Our faith is not in people. Our faith is not in ourselves. But our, our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our praise is lifted up unto Him alone. He that believeth shall not make haste. He will not uh, 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 be uh, uh, under bondage. He will, he will not... Um, run from the battle. He, he will be able to stand in the midst of affliction, in the midst of um, tribulation, in the midst of testings. He will not be ashamed. Why? Because he's standing firmly upon this stone, as it were. That's a wonderful prophecy in my mind this morning. I believe that Christ Jesus is the only sure refuge that we have in this world. Now, before we leave the Old Testament revelation, let us go to the book of Daniel. I want you to see something with me very quickly in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. When, when Daniel was uh, given the um, 
interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember the Colossus that he dreamed of. Remember it was uh, in the shape of a man. And most commentators say that it had, uh, it had to be an image uh, with the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Because he was such a humble character, you know. But uh, in this dream, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw this giant uh, Colossus, this giant figure who had a head of gold, which would be interpreted as Babylon itself. And then it would have arms and a chest of silver, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. And then, and then um, it would have thighs of brass, which would represent Greece in their short rule over the world of that time. And then, of course, the legs of iron would represent Rome. And I personally believe that um, the ten toes and uh, iron and clay mixed, uh, mingled with iron and clay represent the kingdom of the Antichrist in the end of the age. Now, the thing I want you to see in common here between Babylon and Medio Persia and between Greece and Rome is that these are all Gentile kingdoms. These are all Gentile peoples that for a time uh, in God's providence would rule over the earth, would rule as it were. Jesus would state in Luke chapter 21 verse 24, these are the times of the Gentiles when they would rule over this earth. But there would come a time when in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, a stone would be cut out of a mountain without hands. That means it's something that God does. It's something that God did. And this stone would strike the uh, feet of this Colossus and it would all come tumbling down. And then we read in Daniel chapter 2 verse 34, he says, Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without, uh, cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron and clay and brass and silver and gold broken to pieces together and became like a chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away. Now what he's talking about is the glory that pertained to these kingdoms. It would just go away like the dust in the, in the air. It just blows away. And no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image... Listen to this, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I believe that that's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. And we're going to find out in just a little bit why we believe that so strongly. But drop down in this chapter to verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand how long? Forever. Forever, <laughs> Forever brethren. Uh, that's what I wanted to see in the Old Testament prophecies concerning this stone. This stone that represents Jesus Christ and His kingdom. Now, let's go to Matthew 21. The Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 21. Remember, this is a time when Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, according to prophecy, at the very precise day, at the very precise moment, Jesus would be riding into the city of Jerusalem. And uh, 
And he would be uh, announced as the king, as it were, in chapter 21, verse 5, fulfilling this scripture that we find in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and uh, sitting upon an ass, and a colt of the foal of an ass. This is Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. And what's interesting to me um, in, in this context, there, there's actually four themes that are found in this, uh, in this chapter. The first is the coming into Jerusalem, verses 1 through 11. The second is the cleansing of the temple in verses 12 through 16. <laughs> and as Brother Robert mentioned this morning, verses 17 through 22, the cursing of the fig tree. And then we find in verses 23 through 46, the confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel. I want you to notice what verse out of all the verses in the Old Testament, out of all of those prophecies, three, over 300, out of all of the words that Jesus could have used on this occasion, guess which one he chose? Psalm chapter 118, verse 22. Look at it with me this morning. Jesus is speaking to, he uses a parable, uh, the parable of the wicked husbandman. Are you with me here? The parable of the wicked husbandman, which I believe represents the nation of the Jews. And, um, you know, he sent to them servants and they mistreated them, sent to them more servants and uh, they killed them. Then, he, then the owner of the vineyard says, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. Now, uh, I, there's, there's a lot that can be drawn from this parable, but I believe that there are two main points that Jesus is teaching out of this parable. I believe He's teaching about the long-suffering of the Father, the long-suffering of God with His people, the Jewish nation, because He continually sends them messenger after messenger after messenger. But then He says, last of all, I'll send My Son. Surely they're going to revere My Son. And those wicked husbandmen saw the son coming and they said to themselves, all we have to do is kill the son and we'll get the vineyard. Nobody can take the vineyard from them. And you know these Jewish leaders, are boy, they're shaking their heads and they're in their, in their uh, righteous uh, indignation. Jesus says, what is he going to do to these wicked husbandmen? Listen to this. This was the answer of the Jews. Verse 41. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits of their in their seasons. What they did, brothers and sisters, they actually condemned themselves. Do you see what they're doing? They're rendering their own judgment. Because in just a few short years, 70 A.D., the temple that they thought was their uh, ticket to heaven would be taken away. Their nation would remain in obscurity for over 2,000 years until 1948. But look at this with me. Verse 42. Then saith unto them, 
Are you with me in uh, Matthew 21, 42? Then saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This prophecy is taken from the Messianic Psalm 118, verse 22, and speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the stone. And his kingdom is built upon that solid foundation. But don't stop reading with me. Notice what he says in verse 43. Therefore, therefore, because of your refusal, therefore, because of your rejection, therefore, because of your self-righteousness, I say unto you the kingdom of God, shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And I believe that that is an expression of uh, the grafting in or the bringing in of the Gentiles, the elect among the Gentile nations, of which I trust we are a part this morning. But listen carefully. He says in verse 44, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. This sounds exactly like the language of Daniel chapter 2, doesn't it? The sovereignty of God and the responsibility and accountability of man are drawn together in this picture. Because, brothers and sisters, uh, we uh, who have been born of the Spirit of God are able to fall upon this stone in repentance and receive mercy. But to those who reject and refuse Christ, that stone will ultimately fall upon them in judgment. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, these par his parables. They perceived that he spake of them. And when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. In other words, they weren't denying what he was saying. They weren't denying what he was teaching. That they were responding in um, uh, aggression. They were responding in opposition to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And they sought to kill him. Now what this is doing is setting the stage for the crucifixion of Jesus. This is setting the stage for the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. All of this was necessary. All of this had to come to pass just in this manner. I believe that's what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 7 verse 30 when He said the Messiah must first be rejected of this generation of Jews. I'm mindful of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Here you begin to see the reason why he grieved over the nation of Israel. Why he would grieve over the city of Jerusalem in the rejection of him as the very Son of God. And cry out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And what? Ye would not. See, accountability, responsibility. Ye would not. Therefore, your house is left unto you desolate until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Until you come to the place 
where you see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That had to happen in that way and at that time. Now let's go a few years later. After the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, His public ascension that's recorded for us in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. And in Acts chapter 1, two angels appear to the disciples and say, say unto them, How long stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you shall in like manner return again. So in the brightness of that promise, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ continues up unto this very time and this very day. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 4 again with me. In Acts chapter 4, I want you to see what Peter's doing. Peter is connecting the dots. He's connecting the dots that began with this prophecy in Psalm 118 that jumped over to Isaiah 28, that jumped over to Daniel chapter 2, that jumped over to Matthew 21. Now Peter's connecting these dots in his message to the same council, the same people that condemned Jesus to be crucified in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, uh, uh, verse 10 and 11. Watch this. Be it known unto you and all, uh, you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, you see, the rejected stone has become the head of the corner, right? Even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Talking about the healing of the lame man. This is the stone. Do you see it in verse 11? This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now you have to do a lot of work to misunderstand what he just said. He's preaching the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the way to the Father. The idea, and where it came from, I'll never know. But the idea that the majority of God's people will be in heaven's pure world without knowing Jesus Christ without believing in Jesus Christ, without trusting in Jesus Christ, uh, in heaven, wondering why in the world are we here? The very idea is repulsive. And it's against Scripture. Brothers and sisters, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ His Son. John 14, verse 6. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. I, I believe that with all my heart. And it's literally true. And what Peter is doing in this early sermon is connecting the dots that revealed Christ Jesus as the stone of our salvation. As the stone, the capstone of all our redemption. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation, brothers and sisters. Now let us go to Romans chapter 9. 
we could actually go to Romans 9, 10, and 11, but for time's sake this morning, we're going to, we're going to just isolate our study to Romans chapter 9, that great chapter on God's sovereignty. And watch what we find here in Romans chapter 9. In verse 30, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. What the Apostle Paul is doing is drawing a distinction between the understanding of the Jew and the understanding of the Gentile with respect to salvation. The Jew had the idea that it was because of their works or because of their uh, national identity that they had access to God that no one else, no other nation could ever possibly possess. They boasted in the fact that they were the children of Abraham. And as the children of Abraham, surely they would be granted eternal life. Uh, because they were given the oracles of God, they were given the law of God, and they are the ones that had the temple, had the sacrifices, had the priesthood, had the prophecies, had the Old Testament record. They're the ones that were committed all of these good things from the hand of the living God that distinguished them from any other people, and they're the ones that could <coughs> rightly be called the children of God. So when Jesus would teach... In John chapter 10, when Jesus would say, I have sheep which are not of this fold, them also must I bring. He's referring to the Gentiles. But if the Gentiles didn't have the law and the prophets and all of the, the benefits and advantages of the Jew, how then is the Gentile going to experience salvation? It's not by works, but by faith. Believing, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And did you know what the Jewish believers had to learn? That it was the same way for them. Salvation is not because of works. Uh, I love what uh, Brother Robert mentioned uh, this morning in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves... It's the gift of God, not of works, not the works of the law, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I love to think about the, the, the definition of the word workmanship. Poema in the Greek language, poem. Poem. You know what the songs that we sing are, are poems uh, made to music. They're poetry made to music. Well, did you know, brothers and sisters, when an individual is born of the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ is living in their hearts, they're the song that Jesus is singing to the culture. Isn't that wonderful? We are His song. His poema. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But watch what, watch what Paul does. He's going to connect the same dots that Peter did. 
But Israel, but Israel, the descendants, the natural descendants of, of Abraham, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Why haven't they attained to it? Do you understand that the law was not given to save us? The law was not ever given to save man. The law never saved one single man. What the law did was expose the sinfulness of man, the deadedness of man, the inability of man to be perfect. And God demands perfection. And the only perfection that He would ever accept would be the righteousness of His own Son, Jesus Christ. So Israel had a lot to learn. In verse 32, Wherefore, why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law. And they stumbled at the stumbling stone. In God's sovereign order, grace always precedes faith, and faith precedes uh, the saving work, the experience of salvation in Jesus Christ. The Jews stumbled at the cross. The Jews says, hey, if He's the Messiah, why would He go to the cross? If He's the Messiah, how could He die? If He's truly God in the flesh, how could God die? See, they were asking those kind of questions and, and, and it caused them to doubt the sufficiency of the saving work of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, the good news of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't stay dead. No. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose after three days and nights and was a scene of many. And He manifested His glory, His resurrection power. And, and in that way, He became the capstone of our salvation. Paul's connecting the dots. He says, yeah, the Jewish nation... Stumbled. They stumbled at the crucifixion of Christ in verse 33. Are you with me? As it is written, as it is written where? We read it this morning, didn't we? In Isaiah 28. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The Jews stumbled over the crucified Messiah, which was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. But the greatest obstacle to salvation is not wickedness. The greatest obstacle to salvation is self-righteousness. That's what the problem of the Jews were. They thought that they were righteous in themselves. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and asked Him the question, What must I do, he said, to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Uh, they were all about the doing of the works of the law. Jesus gave him the basic law and he says, Oh, these have I kept from my youth up. He manifested his own self-deception that he was righteous enough to be accepted of God. He expected Jesus to pat him on the back and say, Just keep on doing what you're doing, son. But Jesus saw into his heart and what he saw was a covetous spirit. He saw something in the heart of that man that the man didn't see. The man had no knowledge of. Have you ever been that way? 
Have you ever been under the sound of the precious gospel of the Son of God and the light of that truth shined into your very soul and exposed you for the sinner that you actually are? Have you ever been there, friend? That rich young ruler didn't know he was a sinner. He didn't know that he violated the law of God until Jesus said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. One thing, <laughs> just one little bitty thing you lack, go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Oh, what did the scripture say? He went away sorrowfully. Have you ever been there? Have you ever responded in a negative way to the call of Jesus Christ or the call of the gospel? You went away sorrowfully. No peace. No joy. No happiness. That's that rich young ruler. Why? Because he had many possessions. He had many possessions. He didn't want to give away all of his possessions in order to prove his love for Christ or his love for righteousness or his love for God. In other words, you stopped preaching, started meddling now. You see, I want God, listen carefully to me, children, listen, listen. Listen carefully. You, you see, the Jews wanted God on their terms. That was their problem. But God wants us on His terms. And His terms is a full submission to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the whole tenor of the next chapter, isn't it? In Romans chapter 10, right there where you're at. Brethren, uh, 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 my, heart's desire, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God. But it's not according to what? Knowledge. Knowledge. They're ignorant. They're ignorant of the indwelling nature of sin. They're ignorant of the fact that, that uh, uh, salvation is not based upon nationality. Salvation is not based on your lineage. It's not based on whether you're white or black, male or female. It's not, it's not based on whether you're an American or uh, something else, or whether you're a liberal or a conservative or a Republican or a Democrat. Yes, I said that. Salvation is not depending on that. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is depending on one thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The stone of our salvation. Is that what you're standing on? Is, is that what you're trusting in? Then you'll never be ashamed. You'll never be ashamed. You see Paul's connecting the dots. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they have not, what? Submitted themselves to the righteousness which is by faith. They going about to establish their own righteousness, you see. They, they are crossing a line. They are, they are saying that uh, my salvation is uh, because God is obligated to save me for what I've done for Him. But the Apostle Paul says, not so, friends. Your salvation is not because of what you've done for God, but what God has done for you. I'll never forget, Brother Bobby, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I went over to uh, India. 
And I'd never been to India. I'd never seen uh, idolatry like there is in India. There's over three million gods in India. And, and we, were coming, uh, we were coming to the compound through Salem, which is a major city in Tamil Nadu. And uh, we had to stop because of this great parade. And this parade, I mean thousands of people were coming through the streets of Salem. And we found out why. Because they were carrying their God. Four men were carrying this uh, uh, gurney with a God of some kind up on it. Brother Guna told us the name of the God and so forth. And I looked at Guna and I says, you know what, Brother Guna? I'm so thankful to have a God that doesn't need me to carry him. But I need him to carry me. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul is connecting the dots. He's showing us that it was always God's purpose to send His Son as the stone of our salvation. It was always His purpose to have a kingdom not based upon the goodness or righteousness of men, but based upon His holiness, His perfect work of redemption. See, He gets all the glory. See, that's, brothers and sisters, that's why people don't like the doctrines of grace because it takes away the uh, pride of man it it takes away the boastfulness of man look what i've done you see look what i've done for god i'll tell you what i've done i i fast twice in the week yes sir i tithe of all all i have i I do this and I do that. I give to the poor. I, I do all of these things. But here's that poor publican <laughs> over against the wall says, You know, God, I don't have anything to boast in. I don't have one good thing to tell you about. All I can ask for is for your mercy toward an unworthy and a broken sinner like me. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I'll tell you something. That's the man that went home justified. That's the man that God is looking for. Where are you this morning? Which man or woman are you? Are you here this morning saying, well, I'll tell you what, I sure am glad I'm a good fella. Or you, did you have the blessing like many of us have to be raised in the old church and to hear the sound of the truth from the time we were tadpoles? Yeah, I know, I'm good. Are you like that pumpkin? Lord, I need you. You don't need me. I don't have a thing to brag about. Except Jesus Christ. All other ground is what? Is sinking sand. All brothers and sisters, listen carefully as the scriptures connect the dots to about the stone that the builders rejected. Go with me now quickly. I've got I've got a and in in let's go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. I want you to see something with me. Ephesians chapter 2. 
listen to how Paul applies this to the Gentiles, to you and me. Um, Back up to verse 18. For through him we both, now when he says both, he's talking about in context, he's talking about the elect among the Jews and the elect among the Gentiles are all one family in the eyes of God. All right, so he says, for through him, through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access uh, into uh, access by one spirit unto the Father. Now that's a huge principle, brothers and sisters. That's huge. Uh, We have access to the Father. Well, see, in the Jewish mindset, the only one that really had access to the Father was the high priest. He's the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. He's the only one that could sprinkle the blood upon the uh, the mercy seat. He's the only one that could do that. He's the only one that could go rightfully through those curtains. But now the Apostle Paul says, after the cross... The curtain was rent top to bottom. After the cross, the way into the holiest of alls is now open. Open. It's, it's open to you and me. <laughs> and he says, we have that access. And boy, you can just see the grin on his face, can't you? And he says in verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and uh, foreigners, but felt, listen, but fellow citizens with the saints, the sanctified, the holy, and of the household of God. Now, how is that going to be? Paul, please explain to me how that can be. Here it is, connecting the dots. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being what? What? The chief what? Cornerstone. He's the chief, the chief or the high. That word chief could mean the highest. He's the capstone. He's the capstone. The chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. Number one, and I hope you're taking notes. We've got to touch on this quickly. But number one, He is uh, the chief cornerstone of the church by divine appointment. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22, Paul writes this about Jesus. He says... uh, uh, after he, he's raised from the dead, verse 20, above all principality, power, might, and dominion, verse 21, verse 22, and he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the head over all things unto the church, which is his body, his spiritual body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. See, God exalted Jesus Christ and gave Him authority over all things. He's the authoritative head of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, where's the, where is the Primitive Baptist headquarters? Haven't you ever been asked that? I've been asked that a, a ton of times. Where's your headquarters? I always tell them the same thing. It's in heaven. What? In heaven. Because that's where a head is. 
And I know these are perilous days, brothers and sisters, especially in America, as we drift farther and farther away from the God of our fathers, away from our original moorings. I recently uh, read a short history about our founding fathers, and it just moved me to tears to see their conviction and, 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 and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. God blessed America because America was established as a citadel of light in a dark world. And as I watch our nation drift away from that original mooring, I begin to question. I wonder. I wonder how much longer the Lord's going to allow us the freedoms that we now enjoy. I, I, I wonder how much persecution our children and grandchildren are going to have to face because of the wicked policies that are being advanced today. I wonder about things like that, but let me tell you where I'm encouraged. You see, Jesus is the head of the church, which is his body. The body will never drown as long as the head is above water. The church of Jesus Christ is going to survive because of who Jesus is. Jesus is above water. He's seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church, first by divine appointment. Secondly, He is the one that imparts spiritual gifts to the church. Did you know that? Did you know that? Did you know that the church is not responsible for producing preachers, ministers of the gospel? Did you know that? Did you know that the church, even uh, by just simply ordaining a man, that doesn't make him a minister of the gospel? All the church is doing in an ordination service is recognizing someone that does have the gift to ministry. See? God is the one that makes ministers, brothers and sisters. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Jesus Christ is the one that calls, I believe, he calls uh, ministers to preach the gospel. He calls deacons to serve in the church. I believe that. I believe it's a calling. Uh, that God gives, a spiritual gift. And by the way, those are not the only gifts in the church. Somebody says, well, preacher and deacon, that's all we have. Oh, no. No, brothers and sisters, there's a lot, a lot of different kinds of gifts in the church, spiritual gifts. There's, there's the gift of knowledge. There's a gift of counsel. You know, some brothers and, some brothers and, and sisters have a gift of exhortation. They can exhort. They can encourage the church. There's gifts of giving. Did you know that? There's gifts of giving. You know, God has entrusted uh, financial uh, prosperity to some people, and they have, uh, they, they have the gift to give. That's a wonderful thing. There's a many kinds of gifts in the church. The gift of prayer. Public and private. The, the gift of writing. I think about those cards that used to uh, come, come, come our way uh, so often. 
Um, I want to say Sister Grandma. That's all I knew her as. But uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, uh, to me, that's a gift. There's many gifts, and all the gifts are given by Christ as the head of the church. The church is the spiritual body of Jesus Christ, as we just uh, discovered. But uh, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You know what he's teaching there? He's teaching the relationship that we, uh, the people of God, ought to reflect in our home, in our marriages. Just that spirit of submission, that spirit of uh, obedience, that, that spirit of love, that spirit of forgiveness. That ought to be reflected not only in the church, uh, not only in the home, but also in the church body. It's a great, great blessing. Did you know uh, Christ is the one that instituted the ordinances to the church? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, He gave us the commission to baptize. Under the authority of Christ and His church, we are commanded to baptize and make disciples of men. And also uh, over in uh, uh, Luke uh, chapter 22, uh, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And that's what? We have as ordinances. We don't call them sacraments on purpose. A sacrament is something that's holy of itself. And there's a lot of confusion in the religious world about a sacrament. But we understand the Bible to teach that Christ gave ordinances to the church. He ordained that believing men and women, boys and girls, should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He also gave us the ordinance of communion, where we sit together at the Lord's table and remember His death, burial, and resurrection. We remember the sacrifice that He made for us. That, that wasn't uh, Brother Nathan's good idea. That, that wasn't Brother Jerry's good idea. That, that wasn't Elder Poe's good idea that the church should do. That was the command of Christ, that the church should observe these things, these ordinances, until Christ comes again. Jesus had that authority to give that. And Christ, and this is Brother Nathan's favorite verse, Colossians 1.18, Christ must always have what the preeminence the upper place why because he's the chief corner stone i want one more reference before i close and that's found in the language of first peter and we're going to close with this exhortation from god's word in first peter you know peter's still connecting the dots i, I love this <laughs> he's still connecting these dots for us You know, in, in, in 1 Peter, Christians are so closely identified and united with Christ that the very life of Christ exists within them. Their union with Christ is the defining element of their relationship to one another. Listen to what he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. 
Ye also as living or lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're built up as a holy uh, spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. I appreciated what Brother Andy mentioned in the song service. Remember that it's not, uh, our, our song service is not a prelude to the preaching. It's not, it's not something that is uh, incidental. It's something that's designed to be a spiritual offering. And I do wish that I could sing as good as some. I learned by open letter. I opened my mouth and let her fly. I'm sorry about that. Sometimes I let her fly a little too loud and a little too off key. But I want you to always understand that it's coming from a heart that loves the Savior. Let the sound of our songs be pleasing, acceptable in his ears. I believe it is. When I hear these little children singing, they might be off key and they might be a step behind the leader, but I enjoy hearing them because their little hearts are singing praise to the king. That's what it's about. I, I enjoy harmony, sure. That's why I sit close to Brother Kevin when I can. You know, I, I enjoy harmony. Prayers through the preaching of the word. And I believe through your fellowship one with another. It's a great, great blessing to have the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he says, uh, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament. Behold, what? I lay in Zion a what? Brother Paul, what? A chief cornerstone. He's still connecting the dots because it's all about Him. It's all about Jesus. You know what? The best preaching you'll ever hear is the preaching that lifts Christ up the highest. The best songs you'll ever sing are lifting Christ to the highest. See, that's what it's about. And what you behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And allow me to go down just a little bit farther to verse 9. He says, No, 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 no I can't do that. Verse 7, I'm breaking the content. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. See, because everybody doesn't. Somebody says, well, I believe everybody's going to get to glory one way or the other. You know, some people have this way and some people have that. No, brothers and sisters, that's not true. Everybody doesn't believe Jesus is precious. But unto them, that, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, Psalm 118.22, the same is made the head of the corner, the capstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. They were appointed. 
They were appointed not to disobedience and unbelief, but to the wrathful judgment that results from it. Just as salvation is the result of faith and obedience, their rejection of Christ and refusal of Christ is the reason for their condemnation. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to who? To them that are in Christ Jesus. And this is where I want to close uh, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, why, why, why did God call you to be a chosen generation? Why did He call you to be a kingly priesthood? Why, why did He call you as a holy nation or a peculiar people, a purchased? That word peculiar doesn't mean oddballs. It means purchased, possession. Why, why did He call you that? So that ye should, what? Show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light this is the purpose cause for our calling i believe that's why peter and paul connected the dots for us there's much more that could be said on this subject but i want to close with this exhortation all oh, my brothers and sisters don't leave this building don't leave this house today refusing rejecting renouncing the stone of our salvation fall upon this stone in repentance and he'll give you mercy but those that reject him will one day experience the wrath of his holy judgment and be crushed with the earth. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention.